We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST and make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, I'm happy to be joined once again by my colleague, Eddie Scary, DC columnist at The Federalist, also an author of, of several books. Eddie, where can people buy your books? Um, they're always available at Amazon, um, also Barnes and Noble. There are probably some other bookstores, but your best bet is Amazon. And if you're looking for a really like just like, where to find easily find them all just in one place, eddiescary.com. Scary has two R's. Perfect. Eddiescary.com. Scary with two R's. Pick those books up. Eddie, um, we're going to talk about, I, I don't just want to talk about the State of the Union because I think what the State of the Union represented was a shift, um, or at least a symbolic shift, an attempt to make a symbolic shift. And, and Bedford and I sort of were predicting this, not that we're like political psychics or anything like that, but we, we kind of were assuming yesterday the State of the Union would be a, a shift away from the culture war. And we definitely saw that. Or am I wrong um, to have that takeaway that Biden seemed really to make it he wanted to look like and the democratic establishment and the people who crafted his speech at the white house wanted to make it look like in that state of the union address the culture war had had become an afterthought i think that's right there was someone who made a really smart observation that you didn't really hear words about equity which is i think the 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 buzzword of the biden administration particularly the early days and by early days i mean still to this day um the word equity was never racial equity, um, equality, like, uh, these words that kind of define um, the modern left and what, what really the energy that was behind getting Biden in a lot of ways elected. You didn't hear any of that. Um, I think instead you did have, with, with great assists from the national media, MSNBC, CNN, The New York Times, Washington Post, and on and on, um, was this, uh, this, this attempt to reframe this presidency in terms of one as uh, the white, I don't know if he's the White House correspondent still or not, but John Carl of um, ABC News saying um, this, this really feels like it's a wartime State of the Union address. You know, we've got what's going on in Ukraine and he's got to assure the American people it's a wartime address. Well, of course, of course, they don't want to talk about this in terms of the culture wars, as you were just saying, meaning students in the classroom, parents, what's going on with school board meetings, what's going on with um, teachers unions keeping their kids out of the classroom and also with the the critical race theory stuff that they're teaching in schools, even though they deny it. Um, And plus COVID, plus inflation, those things were obviously mentioned. Um, but the the attempt to reframe it, I think, by by Democrats and their sympathizers in the media was um, let's not talk about the things that we know that we're losing on and they are losing big time. So that's that that to my best guess. And I think is the is the answer is that they did not want to talk about the things that they know that they are not winning on. And they, in fact, have been losing pretty big on in, in other elections over the course of the last two years. Yeah, Samuel Goldman had a good tweet. Um, he's a professor at GW who said it, it seemed like it was directed at all of the uh, DC blue check types um, who were breathlessly tweeting the State of the Union address, live tweeting it as they always do. He was like, guys, relax. The speech is not for you. It is for um, independent Democrat-leaning voters who are disillusioned and are part of that uh, chunk that has fallen away from Biden and has caused his approval rating to sink so 
low. And by by that measure, I think we can see why the State of the Union, at least, and I wrote this on our site, The Federalist, today, I really saw in the State of the Union this um, I guess, emergence of the Democratic Party and the establishment Democratic Party's attempt post-Yunkin to uh, put this veneer of moderation or cultural sanity over their policies, which absolutely are not going to be scrubbed of radical cultural leftism. You heard him still give a shout out to the Equality Act last night. You heard him um, refer to abortion as health care. He, he is not going to, and the Democratic Party is not going to be able to walk away from those policies. They can say defund the police when it's easy in a speech that's aimed at, uh, you know, dem leaning independence. But when there are riots, when there's another uh, troublesome shooting, he's not going to be saying defund the police. He's never going to, in a situation where it's difficult, he's not going to say anything um, even close to defund the police. So it seems to me that this is really like superficial surface level signaling. Do you think it's going to work? I don't think there is, I mean, I, 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 I'm, I'm like you, I don't like to make um, psychic predictions. I mean, you're always, we're always going to end up wrong, and then what, how do you account for that? But I would say that memories are not so short that people are going to say, I, I completely forgot or forgive the people who kept my, my child out of school for so many years, who kept me in a mask for so long, um, despite knowing that that was, not, that was not necessary after vaccines were available. Um, I, I, I think that there is, uh, again, the memories are not that short. Um, I would say also that Biden and uh, Biden's presidency, and we can really just boil it down to him, are in, in such a place where they know what the problem is. They know what the problems are. But to fix those problems would to be to go against everything that they campaign, campaigned on and said they were going to do. Um, and this is what's also kind of amusing about um, when you read, for example, a good one that I read today was the Washington Post editorial post uh, post State of the Union, which was um, Biden can recalibrate his presidency. There's all these crises he's facing. Biden is not facing crises. Biden is the crisis. <laughs> all these problems, all these problems have either been created or exacerbated by him and Democrats in control of Congress. When you look at the border, when you look at inflation, um, when you look at COVID restrictions and what's going on with the schools, all of that was either created or exacerbated by them. And so to, to change that is to say, I'm going to completely do the exact opposite of what I said I was going to do. Um, and I think therein lies uh, the, the big problem that they have. And I, I think that the, the way I viewed the speech overall was this kind of, um, I tweeted, tweeted it last night, but it's, it's basically summed up as, please forget everything we put you through for the last two years. We're going to do something different now, we promise. And, I, I, and that's, that's, a, that's a gamble they're perfectly within their right to make. But again, I think that um, the, the wounds and scars that voters have felt over the last two years are, are enduring. <laughs> well, it's interesting you say that because I think uh, there are obviously structural problems with the party that led them to making those political mistakes. And they have zero willingness or ability to sort of grapple with those structural problems in the, in the party because, in fact, they're actually sort of happy to give up the working class voters and go to those suburban voters that Republicans used to do so well with. They're kind of happy to give up, um, you know, that that one cohort in exchange for another one, which just exacerbates 
exacerbates their coming apart problem, right? As Charles Murray has described um, the, the sort of elite sorting that has happened in this country, the Democratic Party um, has no interest or ability to correct that structural foundational issue with its leadership right now that um, the policy agenda is downstream of and that the messaging is downstream of. And so I think now that they sense their power is really under uh, threat, and it is, there, there's a really a very real threat to their power in this this midterm year. Um, now that they've sensed that, they're they're sort of trying to um, cling to their power by pretending, you know, trying trying to just wish away those structural problems and and um, you know put this this veneer um, over them instead of dealing with them. It's like pulling the rug over the the um, the, the dirt that you've swept up. Um, that's kind of exactly what I feel like they're they're doing. Um, and I think you're right; they're not going to work. But I want to ask you about the harsh reality that the media is um, eager to sort of do the Democratic Party's bidding and they will help them convince the American people. They were the ones who were on the right side of the COVID lockdowns and they were the ones who were on the right side of all of these different of critical race theory and all of these different issues. Um, they'll they'll certainly help. And we saw um, Axios reporting that CNN under new leadership, um, it is now going to sort of lean away from partisanship allegedly um, to the extent that it can and go into hard news. All of this, there's these moments of like recognition um, that are happening all across our institutions. Um, I don't know that they can get away with with this because even inside those newsrooms, there are people who believe very firmly in this these very radical ideas for a number of reasons. It's in the newsrooms. It's at the DNC. Can they deal with that in any meaningful way? I mean, as you're saying, there is such a, a hardcore belief by so many people who are in positions of influence um, that it's hard for the Democratic Party, and as far as electoral success goes, to get away from it and to run away from it because they're constantly having to answer these people who are telling them, no, you still have to, you still owe us a lot of things. Um, I, I just read an op-ed in the New York, uh, the Washington Post um, this past week that was a that was about, uh, again, about DeSantis, Ron DeSantis and what he's doing wrong in Florida. And it's about how he has this, um, this Surgeon General, who is black, by the way, um, this Surgeon General who is, who's flouting the science by, by denying the, the efficacy of masks and he's not promoting um, vaccines enough. Um, you still have too many of those voices coming out and politicizing and um, the never-ending desire to cling to the pandemic and insist that it's Trump's fault. Um, speaking of whom, I think the other issue with Democrats and coming into these midterm elections is that they they want, and, and when I say Democrats, I, I mean the media too, um, that they need to keep talking about Trump and they need for this to still still be about Trump. And as 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 short or long as our memories are, I want to say that when two years as he's out of office, I don't know that people are still thinking that everything that happens is his fault. I was watching MSNBC the other day, Morning Joe and MSNBC, probably their most influential program in Washington, at least. And they were just they were insistent that what we're seeing happen in Ukraine and unfold in Ukraine with Russia is somehow Trump's fault. And the fact that Republicans gave him a pass on anything and I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm witnessing, and we all are witnessing the attempt in real life to make this, who'd have thought, a, a country that just invaded another country that we are supposed to, we have considered, or the Democrats have considered sacred over the last two years, this untouchable, infallible um, country 
that now it's been invaded and people are dying. And this, there's, you cannot blame Trump for this. This happened under someone and it didn't happen under Trump. And I think that they are still trying to make that about him. That's why they're so, um, so still invested in the January 6th riots and all of that and still want to talk about that, want to see harsher prosecutions because they want to remind people over and over again about Donald Trump. But I'm sorry, when you see that your... Um, your life, a voter sees that their life is not getting any better. In fact, they're seeing their savings dwindle away. They're seeing whatever gains they're making in um, in their income just completely erased by inflation. They're seeing these uh, the violence coming into their otherwise peaceful neighborhoods. They, they're, you, can, you can't tell them any longer that this is because of Trump. And without Trump, it's, it's harder and harder for Democrats to make the case that they're the ones who should be in charge. Right. Yeah, I think that's really well said. Um, And I want to ask you about a moment after the State of the Union when uh, on MSNBC, Joy Reid sort of seemed to be lamenting that Joe Biden had not mentioned January 6th, despite being in the Capitol and in the the House chamber. Nicole Wallace, um, after Joy Reid, I think, mentioned this a second time, Nicole Wallace said, well, you know, maybe he just didn't want to be divisive with his rhetoric. He didn't want to divide people in the in the chamber with his rhetoric. And that was fascinating to me because obviously, I mean, Nicole Wallace every single day, it's January 6th. I mean, it's it, you look up the screen on a screen on MSNBC in any given moment, and you're likely to see stuff about January 6th on the screen. Um, and, and so it just, I don't know how it almost seems like the center um, that leans left, of course, um, it would be silly to, to pretend otherwise. It almost seems like the center is even starting to pick up on all of this. Um, and I, I don't know how far that can possibly go, though. Um, when I mean, what did you did you hear that back and forth between Joy Reid and Nicole Wallace? You're, you're one of the only other people I know who watches MSNBC regularly. <laughs> <laughs> I know I usually I usually do. And I would have if um if not for other circumstances that for, that prevented that, but I could totally see that happening um, in charge and everyone who insisted they knew better and could do a better job than Republicans or Trump, their voters' lives who entrusted, entrusted their lives to these people, things are not going better. And in fact, the things that all these people campaigned on and said were necessary to get everything back on track has not worked, has actually gone in the opposite direction. Um, and, and so when you listen to Biden's speech where he says even things like, yeah, I know that we, he, you know, he touts certain things about the economy and he says some things were just so ridiculous. At one point he said that he is the only administration to have cut a trillion dollars from the deficit. But that's only because we spent an unprecedented, what, three trillion under Trump because of COVID. He then spent another two trillion. And so therefore you're missing the one trillion. That's, that's supposed to be something we're excited about. Um, but you know, just things where he's touting and his successes and everything. He at the same time would go on to say, but I know that you're hurting and we want to address this. We want to make sure that gas prices are okay. We want to make sure that grocery prices are okay. Well, we're already at this point because of you. And now you're telling us that we should, we should continue to trust you and the people that we put in charge to, to right this ship. You're the one who took us off course 
or took us further off course than we than we believe we were why on earth should we should we now trust you because it's an election year that's convenient timing <laughs> yeah and i i also as again somebody who's followed the media for a really long time uh and, and done a great job documenting its uh lurch leftward um i'm wondering what you thought of the media's coverage um of the speech because it was I, I think I predicted this on, on Bedford on the show with Bedford yesterday, and I don't think it happened. Um, so I, I was sort of assuming they would be tough on Biden because they love to performatively be tough on Democrats when it's easy, when it's hard, forget it. But when it's easy, they'll happily sort of be performatively tough on them because it gives them a sort of feather in their cap and it lets them say, oh, I'm Jim Acosta. I was tough on Obama when he was cozying up to Fidel Castro uh, and, and makes them feel like the firefighters. So really want to be um but the media coverage was pretty down the middle i don't know what did you think about it um what i i would say it was mixed is probably how i would how i would put it um there was there was a lot of uh, kind of going back to the um the cute ideas about what it means to 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 comment on a on a president's state of the union it was he's trying to reflect leadership he's trying to inspire unity you know words like leadership and unity that are very patriotic and very um as you might say like centrists or down the middle um but i mean are, are we going to ignore the actual problems because i don't i don't recall that being the case i i, I always found and i would say objectively speaking to the extent that i can actually say that i always thought that um because, for example, they gave Biden a lot of credit for not attacking Trump, for not bringing up Trump or Republicans. That was something I saw in media coverage after Biden's State of the Union. During Biden's or during Trump, when he was in office, I don't think there was a single time he ever mentioned Hillary Clinton or Obama or out and out attacked Democrats. He might have elevated certain issues that obviously were on his agenda, the border, veterans, um, getting the, the European Union or, or NATO to kick in more money for the defense. He might have brought those up. He might have brought Rush Limbaugh in to give him an award, um, but there was not any kind of overt partisan nature to Trump's speech. So if you're going to credit Biden for that in any kind of way that this suggests he did something remarkable, um, I think that that's just a flat point when you consider if, if you were to compare him to the previous uh, president, when every time you come off of a a state of the union speech it's nothing but fire breathing and how well he, he's he's changing the that he wants to distract people from any number of issues and the things he's doing it, it was always like to suggest that he was doing something sinister well no i think they want to talk about very um vague and traditionally patriotic terms like leadership and unity simply because the problems are so bad they're, they're really just so bad it's best to just pretend they don't exist even at all <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and that actually leads me to the other thing I wanted to ask you about, which was, uh, of course, President Biden sort of went all in on Ukraine during the address. And that was to be expected because both sort of sides of the aisle, we saw this from Republicans as well in the response, um, really feel like, I mean, first of all, their establishments are pretty much owned by um, neoconservatives on, on both sides. Uh, but 
they they really believe that you can have this sort of patriotic rallying cry. And when you paint this David and Goliath picture, it's something that works really well with voters. And the media then likes that as well, because not only is the media dominated by people with similar um, outlooks on foreign policy, but the media also really, really likes those stories. Um, the the drama, they, they you know, really understand how that can bring clicks and eyeballs and, and all of that. Um, how do you think the Biden administrations, and let's not even talk about the, the policy side of it right now. Let's talk about how it was presented in the State of the Union and how it's been handled from the White House so far. How do you think the Biden administration has managed the uh, public, I guess, presentation of their strategy when it comes to Ukraine now that we are, you know, I think uh, days maybe of a full week or more into the, the invasion? Yeah, I think that there has been a hope on and a push. Uh, there's been a hope on on behalf of the the Biden administration, a push on behalf of the journalists, as just just as you were saying, in the national media to make this the center point. Just as I was talking about John Carl, ABC News going into the State of the Union, saying um, this feels like a wartime speech. This is this is different. It's a wartime thing, and of course. If the uh, if the perception is created, if there's a successful perception created that we need to rally and get behind this cause over something with an Eastern European country, this very small European country, which isn't to say it doesn't matter. It's just that this is a conflict that's been going on for 30 years plus. Um, if if you want to create the perception that we need to go all in on this, including um, Biden's um, repeated. I think he hopes people don't notice, though he has said it multiple times, that there will be sacrifices at home, there will be costs at home um, to, uh, to our involvement and our engagement in this. Um, yeah, I do think that that's what the media want. I think that that's what the White House wants. They want us to view his presidency right now through the prism of, of this foreign war. Are they successful at it? I don't think so. I think that what the polls probably show are that people have mixed feelings on it, largely because they don't know anything about Ukraine. They don't know anything about the Eastern European conflict. They don't know why Russia would have anything to do with it. They don't know why um, we would be opposed to that. Um, I, I know we've been told for years not to, for the last few years, uh, that Russia is the enemy. So maybe in that sense, there is some some sympathy and, and, and maybe there's a, a benefit of the doubt, I guess, given to the White House on, on Russia and Ukraine. Um, but again, I think at the end of the day, people still say, you know what, you've asked me to second, and I have, I've done my best on COVID, I've foregone seeing family, I've, um, I've done my best with uh, the racial reckoning, I have, I have worn the mask, I've kept my child out of school, I'm, I'm trying to eat whatever costs you're giving me with the inflation stuff, but now you're saddling me with one more thing and telling me to prepare myself for one more thing under this president. I mean, I think that people have a breaking point and they're getting very, very close if they haven't reached it already. Do you think the media's um, approach to covering foreign conflicts and covering war has uh, been a, a benefit for the Biden administration that they that that their uh, f I guess their foreign policy um, in Afghanistan, for instance, and this is this is interesting. Their their foreign policy in Afghanistan absolutely failed because the media, and I'm just talking about this from a sort of public presentation perspective right now. Um, although I, I think it failed on the substance as well, uh, but it, their their foreign policy failed because the media um, is generally neoconservative and likes to rally around the flag on these issues and these issues alone, seemingly. Um, so the Biden administration 
station, you know, when the the cable news networks and uh, the the news networks were fixated on what was happening in Afghanistan, it did not make the Biden administration look good. Now that they are fixated on Ukraine, um, and I would argue almost disproportionately so, although it is it's a hugely important issue. But when you go to the homepage of the New York Times, an American newspaper, and it's every story on the front um, and on the landing page. There, I think, is a legitimate question about what's happening in that sense. Um, so do you do you think that it's it's really it's benefiting the Biden administration in this case? Well, I think that um, kind of as I was saying before, is that when they're, the issues aren't working in your favor, just stop talking about them, change the subject. Um, they want it to be about Ukraine because this subject they feel is um, somehow um, free of like the partisanship of what we have just because it, and, and precisely because you're saying because the media view it as a nonpartisan thing this is something we're all just supposed to be, agree on right um, so instead let's let's not talk about things that are domestic those are those are issues that the media will call divisive and controversial meaning and when they say that they mean that it's not very good for Democrats there's enough people who care about this issue that they're willing to go the opposite way and fulfill the opposite um, operate the opposite way when it comes to election day than what they would like. Um, so I think, yes, of course, there is, again, a real legitimate American interest in this. There is a stake in this. People have a, re a real reason to be concerned. Even people I've talked to who are not the most political people are concerned about what's going on in Ukraine and what's, and, you know, uh, how that might affect us down the road, um, because it does. It obviously does, does affect us. But... Um, the the media concentration on it, the national media focus, outside focus, as you were saying, I do believe is because these issues aren't working for us too well. The ones that we have been focusing on, um, when I say crime, I mean kind of like the, the racial Black Lives Matter kind of general realm, which has led to a lot of crime, um, COVID, school issues. And I, I, I just want to give you a good example um, I forget if it was CNN or Politico, but there was one outlet that was talking about how now um, school, like school council meetings and those kind of things have become an election, school council, these hyper-local elections have become pretty heated. It's, it, it said that Republicans have now politicized Yes, isn't that great? Right? It's like, like when it's like when the football players fight, and the guy who who punches back is the one who gets flagged. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like so Republicans because they responded to something that was happening, and they they want to draw a distinction in you know the elections that they're having and who's controlling these areas of, of public life. That's now politicized. Now now it's been sullied because Republicans answered back, um, and I think that that's what we're seeing in terms of. Let's shift the focus to Ukraine and make this make this everything. Same thing you see with Biden's speech is why we, we, we he spent so much time on it. I think that's completely correct, um, and it, it's interesting because it does. It seems like he he feels like he has wind at his uh, wind at his at his his back right now, wind in his sails because it is with independence. I mean, he spent. I, I didn't count. I'm sure some news outlet counted the percentage or the, the number of minutes that Biden spends on Ukraine. And again, we're not denying that it's a significant issue, but it was um, a huge chunk of his speech. And it does seem to be clear they're viewing this as um, an opportunity for him to, to flex as the commander in chief and as the leader and in a way that will, will work with with independence. 
again, I still don't know how, uh, for all the reasons you've laid out, how plausible um, or effective uh, this this shift on the part of of Democrats can possibly be. And Eddie, I want to ask you about the media in particular, because I think there are two layers here. On on the one hand, I think the the media is um, full of, like we were saying earlier, this generation of uh, especially younger journalists. And you hear this if you talk to people at the New York Times or the Washington Post, or you read the reporting on it, or you look at the slack leaks uh, that have been published. It's really a war between older and younger journalists. Journalists, and I do think there are a lot of younger journalists that are fully on board this uh, leftist culture war. And no matter how you lay this out to some people on the left, they refuse to accept that it is their culture war, that they own it because they have been convinced by years of blaming conservatives for it, that it's somehow dirty. Like they don't want to touch the culture war. They don't want to get their hand. They would never dabble in something so déclassé as a culture war. Oh my goodness. And yet they're the ones that are taking credit for all of the cultural change that they have created. They're happy to take victory laps, but they don't want the credit for something so negative as the culture war. They're the ones who wage the culture war by definition of the word progressive. It's all on them. And they don't want to own it when it's negative. But when it's positive, of course, they do. And those people staff these newsrooms. So on the one hand, you're going to have people, the, the boomer bosses at places like CNN saying, our ratings have tanked. We are not speaking to a big enough chunk of the country to do well financially. We need to change. But on the other hand, you have people in the media and at the DNC and everywhere else who have been convinced that everybody who disagrees with them and that everybody who voted for Trump is a bigot. Um, And when you have that outlook on life, how can you possibly turn back when you have set those definitions? And so, Eddie, I'm curious for your take on how deeply embedded that ideology is in the media, because from my perspective, I I wonder who wins that tug of war. Is it the boomer bosses um, and and their maybe millennial allies? who are you know few and far between it seems but but want you know the the business to be sound and are maybe more reasonable who wins that that tug of war in in your opinion yeah so I, that was really well said and the, the phrase that you use about is there any turning back and I I, I was gonna say say it a different way which is that there's no another cliche which is that there's no putting that genie back in the bottle yeah right when you when you suddenly hand over your newsroom and the control and the moral authority of being an editor or being someone in a leadership position and say oh the people who are underneath me are actually the ones who get to make these decisions or we're going we're going to form our decisions based on how much noise and how much um you know protest that that the, the people who i'm supposed to be leading how much they make I'm going to make those decisions based on them. Um, that you've you've completely given up everything, and I think of um, it, it happened in the New York Times. Back, to, uh, I think the best example would have been when Tom Cotton wrote the "Send in yeah. the Troops" piece uh, or "Send in the Guard," whatever it was, which was um, their headline, by the way, not his. Right, exactly. Yeah, to send send in the guards and the troops, whatever it was, into I guess uh, into cities who, that were, had all this Black Lives Matter rioting and unrest. Um, you had that, that was an opinion side issue, right? And there used to be like this wall that was like we don't really we don't really have decisions made based on the news side. The news side doesn't get to dictate the opinion side, and so on and so forth. But all these news side journalists who believe that um, you call it an ideology, and I think that is the right word. I call it a social justice ideology that this this is a matter of 
um, morally what's right and wrong. This is it. There is no objectivity to this. This is about what we tell people is acceptable in America and what's acceptable generally. Um, they come out and say you can't publish something like that. That's an opinion that people cannot hear. Um, and the same thing happened at the Wall Street Journal, a more conservative paper on the opinion side. They were publishing some, I forget what even it was they were publishing. It was something, I guess, a little bit more sympathetic to Trump. And then you had all these um, news side journalists saying, well, you know what, that's, that's just unacceptable. Like, that's morally apprehensible that we would do something like that. Even though, obviously, at least close to, if not half or most or, or more of the country feels that way. We're not just talking about one person. We're talking about millions and millions of people. And, and if they don't, I don't know, feel that way, they're, they're sympathetic to it, they're open-minded to it. So for these people who are in these positions to pressure um, their bosses, their publications, to say, you can't, you can't give a voice to millions and millions of people who believe these things because that's harmful, that's violence, I don't feel safe. Um, that's morally reprehensible. I think that that, that is, again, the conundrum that so many of our, our biggest institutions, including the Democratic Party, are finding themselves, um, there, there really is no turning back. And, and that's one of the things I, I understand people's frustrations um, completely with the two party system. Um, but we do have and this is not to get into a debate about that. But as our the, the sort of business objectives um, change in media and in all of these different sectors of the economy, I mean, even in like this happens in Hollywood, like as people nicheify because you don't have, you know, Stephen Colbert can be the number one late night host with four million viewers where Johnny Carson needed to pull in. And, you know, north of 15 million, and you then have to naturally speak to a broader section of the public. This nicheification is happening in every sector of our economy. And that is why the New York Times retracted an op-ed by Tom Cotton, because they said, listen, like our subscribers are NPR coastal, like latte liberals. They, um, they don't want this. Thus, I'm going to get subscription cancellations if we leave it in and that hurts our business. But they still purport to speak for the whole country. And when you have two parties, obviously, there are a lot of disadvantages. But one advantage is that you need to have a broader base. And where, where the New York Times is going to nicheify itself, it's going to purport to be an institution that covers the entire country and is neutral. Um, the Associated Press will do the same thing. CNN will do the same thing. They can't functionally do that anymore. Um, and so I think, and maybe this is a good place to sort of wrap up the discussion, Eddie, that ultimately, here's a here's a really uh, optimistic, a rare note of optimism. I think ultimately, Joe Biden feeling that in order to stay in power, he needs to put the left culture war on the back burner. He needs to be pro-American. He needs to say things like, we can all agree to fund the police. I think that is ultimately a good thing for the country, even if it feels fragile, even if it feels like they might not be able to ultimately pull it off. I do think the fact that at least the the party in power feels the need to become, to, to sort of at least look and signal like it, it is broadening its appeal. I think that is a good thing ultimately for the country. It would be a good thing if it weren't for the fact that, and I, I, I don't want to poke any holes in your optimism. I think we're always <laughs> optimistic at the Federalist. Um, we're always hopeful for America. I think the problem is that, and I, I see it, a, a direct parallel I would see it is with what they, how they talk about COVID right now. Mm. What they say is now is time for a break. 
that was what CDC's um, director, Rochelle Lewinsky, or Walensky said. She said, I think it's time, we wanna give people a break from the mask. Obviously it's 2022, what do we have? We have an uh, election year, we have an election coming up. And you see, but they at the same time, anyone who talks like that in the administration or the, the public health experts, they then say, but we have the tools to bring it back if things get worse, or if we believe that there's new variants, waning immunity, any of these things. And my point to saying that is that, you know, yes, it's good that there are these calls for unity and to talk about the things that have a broader sense of appeal. However, is that done just for the election year? I'm very, very skeptical that they won't bring all these things back and take it as a green light to pursue their wildest dreams um, if they are given another chance at it. And that, that is, I, I, I don't, I can't think of an example of that happening on the right. Maybe it has before where there's, there is an, an excess of pursuing what they believe to be true and, and they kind of lose track of what has broad appeal. My, my, my experience has been actually that within the Republican Party, what kind of does them in is this sense of, um, there's a sense of corruption. It's not so much of like lack of broad appeal policy-wise, it's more like corruption within the party oftentimes is what happens, uh, scandals of some kind. Um, but with the Democratic Party, what we see is this overreaching in terms of policy that affects everybody. Um, and so I just, again, would say that I'm, I'm skeptical that any, any appeals to um, a broader base are short-lived. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think I'm with you on that, Eddie, although I do try uh, to to be optimistic. It's hard to see how you go this far down the rabbit hole and, and broaden all of these definitions um, and uh, accuse so many people of heinous sort of conduct and, and belief systems and then just memory hole all of it. So I, I do think at best we're in, you know, maybe maybe we're, we're digging ourselves out of a hole for the next decade. There's no, there's certainly no uh, quick fix. It takes people starting. It, it'll take a lot of, I think, work on behalf of independent media, like fixing CNN is fine, but there are certain structural things like we were talking about with the DNC and, and CNN that uh, there is no will or ability to fix. And so people sort of finding their way into different channels um, where they're not sort of slammed with literal disinformation day in okay. and day out. That's a, I guess that's our last best hope, but Eddie, St Eddie scary DC columnist at the Federalist, also an author. You can check out his books over at Amazon. Thank you so much for your time, Eddie. Thanks. Good to be with you. I love having Eddie on Federalist Radio Hour. He knows so much about media and is like so immersed <laughs> in it. It's awesome. Um, well, you've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at the Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. 